One of the things I can always count on is that there will always be confirmation. Now, what is confirmation? Confirmation is when you get that sign from the universe, that little synchronistic kismet moment that reassures you that what you're doing is right. And the fact that Anchor by Spotify makes everything so easy to record my podcast and upload it, I've got episodes lined up for the rest of the year, all in one place, because everything can be done either on my desktop or on my phone. Anchor has the tools that allows you to record and edit your podcast anywhere, right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and so many more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. I would suggest downloading the Anchor app or going to anchor.fm to get started because the one thing that could happen is you put out something that everyone needs to hear and you get confirmation of exactly what you needed. Even though there are millions of podcasts already, the world doesn't have yours. Join Anchor today. Welcome back to another episode of Metaphysical AF. Thank you guys so much for joining me here. Today we're going to be talking about symbolism and what the power of symbols means and the secret language of symbols. And we're just going to dive right into it. I'm reading from a book that is about from 1993, which some of you may not even have been born yet. Cannot even imagine. Um, but we're just going <laughs> to, we're going to get into it here. Okay. So symbols are profound expressions of human nature and occur in all culture at all times. From their first appearance in Paleolithic caves, they have accompanied the development of civilization and in their correct context, they still speak powerfully to our intellect, emotions, and spirit. Human communication depends largely on signs in the form of written or spoken words, images, or gestures. These symbols are conscious and explicit representations of reality, of objects, actions, and concepts in the world around us. But there is another aspect of symbolism that is equally important, though less explicit, the side that relates to our inner psychological and spiritual world. Within this world, a symbol can represent some deep intuitive wisdom that eludes direct expression. Older civilizations recognized the power of symbols and used them extensively in their art, religions, myths, and rituals. Although they are often dismissed by Western nationalism, the inner significance of symbols is undiminished today, and they still appear frequently in art, literature, and film, and in the stories loved by successive generations of children. Deep-rooted symbols are used sim subliminally and cynically in advertisements and even in political campaigns. Most people confront the profoundest symbols in dreams. They are also seen in the spontaneous paintings and drawings of children and of patients in psychotherapy. According to Swiss psychologist and psychotherapist Carl Jung, symbols generate themselves from the unconscious as a spontaneous expression of some deep inner power of what we are aware but which we cannot fully express in words. Certain kinds of symbolism constitute a universal language. 
because the images and their meanings occur in similar forms and carry similar power across cultures and centuries. The symbols that go to make up this language are the natural expressions of inner psychological forces. Perhaps because of an intuitive awareness of the part they play in our inner lives, people tend to be drawn to symbols. Drawing upon psychology, Eastern and Western spirituality, anthropology and history, we aim to respond to the interest and provide an easy access into the spiritual world. Modern theories about the meanings and uses of symbols are derived largely largely from the pioneering work of Carl Gustav Jung. In analyzing the dreams of various patients, normal, neurotic, and psychotic, Jung noted the reoccurrence of certain deeply symbolic images, such as the mandala. He was also struck by the similarity between the images that emerged during analysis and the symbols appearing in Eastern and Western religions, myth, legends, and rituals, particularly those of esoteric movements such as alchemy. Jung concluded not only that some symbols are, are of universal significance, but also that symbolism plays an important role in the psychic process that influences every aspect of human thought and endeavor. Jung believed the human psyche, the sum of consciousness and unconscious mental activity, to have a real and discernible structure. Consciousness uh, comprises the thoughts and actions under the control of the will. It is underlaid by the preconscious, the mental faculties and memories which can be readily summoned into consciousness, and by the personal unconscious, a vast reservoir of individual memoirs, perceptions, experiences, and repressed desires, to which we occasionally gain access as they surface into consciousness through dreams or sudden flashes of recollection. Buried still deeper in the human psyche, in Jung's view, is the collective unconscious. The seed of those instinctive patterns of thought and behavior shaped by millennia of human experience into what we now recognize as emotions and values. These primordial images cannot be called upon into consciousness. They can only be examined in symbolic form, personalized as men or women, or as images projected by our minds onto the outside world. Jung called these primordial symbols archetypes and saw them as the common inheritance of humankind. According to Zhang, an individual is psychologically healthy when the conscious and unconscious minds are in dynamic balance. He held that psychic energy, the life force, flowed from the unconscious to the conscious to satisfy the demands of the conscious mind, and in the reverse direction to satisfy the unconscious mind. Any interruption of this progress or regression is a failure to reconcile the, op the opposing forces that make up the human psyche and leads to inner conflict. As well as the division between the conscious and the unconscious, these forces consist of other opposites, such as intuition and rationality, emotion and thought, instincts and spirituality, and the various paired aspects of the personality, such as extroversion and introversion, mastery and sympathy, and negativity and conformity. Jung's belief that archetype symbols can be used to explore the boundaries between the conscious and unconscious mind had an important influence on his clinical techniques. He analyzed the symbols in the dreams of his patients, seeing them as vital cues to their psychological problems and as indicators of their progress. Jung's techniques are widely used in psychotherapy today. For example, a patient may be encouraged to meditate upon a symbol or to provide words associated with it in an attempt to unlock its meaning. Once the meaning becomes clear, the 
patient not only obtains new insights into his or her own mind, but usually finds the meaning usually finds the meaningful symbols begin to occur with greater and greater frequency, as, as if each symbol unlocks a door into the unconscious thought and through which other symbols can then be allowed to emerge. It was largely because of his ideas on symbolism that Jung was forced to break with his friend and mentor, Sigmund Freud. Freud also attached great importance to the use of symbols in understanding the human mind, but took them to represent repressed sexuality or other definitive mental content. For example, anything that is erect or can be erected or can penetrate is regarded in Freudian theology as a symbol of the male sex organs, while anything that can be entered or penetrated is a symbol of the female. To use Jung's terminology, Freud saw symbols only as signs concrete expressions of a known reality. However, to Jung, male and female sexuality were themselves only expressions of deeper creative forces. Even when the intellect tells us that a symbol is manifestively sexual, it is possible to go beyond the interpretation and discover a further breadth of diversity and implication and a metaphoric and enigmatic portrayal of psychic forces. Now, I'm going to talk about the archetype. The human race has always used symbols to express its awareness of the dynamic creative forces underlying existence, variously believed to be the elements, the gods, or the cosmos. At a more conscious level, symbols, particularly symbolic stories such as myths and legends, have been used to express abstract qualities such as truth, justice, heroism, mercy, wisdom, courage, and love. In Jungarian terms, we are all born with instinctive predispositions towards these qualities, a set of internal blueprints of what it means to be fully human. These blueprints, or archetypes, have a dynamic aspect. They can be thought of as bundles of psychic energy that influence the manner in which we understand and react to life and through which we develop motives, ideals, and certain facets of personality. Although they reside deep within the unconscious, the archetypes can be stimulated to emerge into consciousness where they express themselves in the form of symbols and symbol systems. According to Jung, we move towards psychological health when we recognize and reconcile our conflicting archetype energies. This can be achieved through psychotherapy, by the careful study of dream symbolism, or by using symbols themselves as the point of departure. Instead of waiting for the archetypal symbols to emerge from the unconscious, existing symbols can be used as a focus for meditation and thus provide pathways into the unconscious. The quest for self-knowledge through symbols is not the exclusive territory of Jung psychology. To know oneself is an aspect of enlightenment, and in all the great philosophical and religious traditions, this is so. From his clinical studies and surveys of myth and tradition, Jung identified the main archetype influences on human thought and behavior. The anima is the female archetype, the collective, universal image of women embedded in the male, con in the male unconscious. It manifests itself as sentimentality and a tendency towards moodiness, compassion, and tenderness. The anima appears symbolically in legends and dreams as the princess imprisoned in a tower, or the mysterious enchantress weaving magic spells. In the negative aspect, the anima can appear as the heartless, calculating female who lures a man only to reject him when he is hopelessly ensnared. The animus, the collective image of a man in the female unconsciousness, emerges symbolically as the ideal of manhood. 
the hero in shining armor, the adventurer who becomes a prince or overcomes evil, or in its negative aspect as the cruel, destructive man who treats a woman as a sex object and discards her once he has robbed her of her virginity and tired of her. It is the side of women what it is the side of women that is aggressive, power seeking, and opinionated. We all have an anima and an animus. Powerful processes are also at work with the other archetypes. While the mother archetype, the nurturing, caring side of human nature, begins to express itself from birth in a child's suckling and attachment behavior, the father archetype typically emerges later. Studies show that a child prefers a woman's voice to a man's in the early months of life. The father is the lord over the material, temporal lord, while the mother is the ruler of the unseen world of emotions and feelings. In its positive aspect, the father archetype is the protective presence, the wise king and legend, the just lawgiver and judge. In the negative aspect, he's the monstrous tyrant, the Greek god Kronos who devours his own children. The trickster archetype is the disruptive, rebellious energy that enjoys denying or questioning the status quo. The trickster has no obvious moral code beyond its urge to disrupt and ridicule. At worst, the trickster can destroy our self-confidence and overturn our most cherished beliefs, but can also serve positive ends, prodding us out of complacency and forcing a re-examination of our goals. In myth, the trickster is best symbolized by the Norse god Loki, who variously aided or tricked his fellow gods, depending on whim. The shadow is disruptive energy of a different kind. It is the self-willed, self-seeking part of human nature, which projected outward is the urge to find a scapegoat and to victimize those least able to defend themselves. But it also has a positive role setting up a creative tension with the sustaining archetype aspects within us, giving us something to push against in life, an inner obstacle to overcome. Although the shadow is an essentially part of the psyche, we commonly repress it during the early years of life in the process of socialization to be more worthy of our parents' love. Accepting the shadow in later life requires considerable moral effort. Assuming the most powerful symbols arise from archetypes, aspects of the collective unconscious, why are their uses and meanings not consistent across cultural boundaries? For example, the genitalia are never used symbolically in Christian art, but in the East, they are revered spiritual symbols. In the West, a fat belly is a symbol of gluttony, whereas to the Chinese, it is an attribute of the god of wealth, and in India, it is associated with Ganesha, the elephant god of sacred wisdom. Even colors can carry different symbolic meaning. In Europe, yellow connotes deceit and cowardice, but it is the imperial color in China and in Buddhist tradition. It stands for humility and renunciation. The underlying reason for these differences is that the symbols used to portray archetypal energies are subject to the creative limitations of the human mind. Two individuals looking at the same clouds will see them different shapes. In each case, the stimulus is the same, but the response made to it depends upon the observer. At the cultural level, the process of differentiation receives further stimuli from the natural environment. For example, in parts of the arid Middle East, sand, come, sand came to symbolize purity, since it was used for washing in place of water. But in the wetter communities, 
but in the weather in the wetter countries of Europe, it became associated with instability and impermanence. The identities of a culture gods, often in embodiments of Jungarian archetypes, were also shaped by environment. The Norse gods displayed the qualities needed to survive in the cold, harsh climate, ferocity, determination, extrovertism, and intense physicality. However, the Hindu gods, though still representing the same archetypes, are subtler and more spiritualized, reflecting the slower pace of life on the Indian subcontinent. Human nature thrives upon opposition and difference. Ethnic groups living close to each other often deliberately exaggerated small variations in the attributes of gods and goddesses into major discrepancies, each group claiming a right to an exclusive truth. When one culture or one religion overcame another, it either absorbed the gods or the defeated group, adapting to fit its own beliefs and iconography or anathematized them. As Christianity spread across Europe, it largely supplanted, supplanted the pagan religions through systemically persecuting their adherents. However, when Buddhism arrived in Tibet in the 7th century CE, it adopted many symbols and practices from the indigenous shamanic religion, converting native deities into Buddhist bodhisattvas and lesser divinities. Finally, symbols often become modified with the passage of time. As a culture increases in longevity, there is a tendency to regard the beliefs of previous generations as being primitive or superstitious. Their symbolisms, their symbols are rationalized and sanitized, interpreted literally and simply abandoned, although altogether by a cultural elite. As has happened with a great ideal, this has happened with a great deal of religions and mythical symbolism in the, in the scientific West. Stripped from their context, such symbols diminish in power and have to be rediscovered afresh, just as Jung discovered the symbols of archetypes with his patients spontaneously as they generated them in their dreams, sketchings, and paintings. Symbols tend to accumulate their meaning slowly over hundreds of years, like words. Their connotations proliferate along many branches, dividing following a, very, a variety of distinctive routes according to cultural context. However, some symbols or types of symbols are so universally potent, so close to the very stuff of life, that their meaning tend to remain constant or to vary within a much narrower spectrum. Unsurprisingly, there is often a connection between the power of symbols and their antiquity. For primitive societies with the most basic requirements of life, food, warmth, shelter, and sex, loomed large. Alongside the instincts to survive and reproduce was the instincts to find meaning, to make more sense of the necessities of which life depended. For example, we presume that the sun was an object of intense speculation, and certainly, in due course, it became the theme of some of humankind's most powerful myths. As civilizations developed, these early preoccupations retained their force, and even today, the symbols connected to them resonate with significance. Many of us still believe that profound realities dwell beyond the reach of our objective reason. We are ready to acknowledge that such truths are eternal, and we sense instinctively that the language of symbols will give us access to them. This, in part, explains why even ancient symbols seem full of potential energy, as if addressing some hidden center within ourselves. Such powerful, far-reaching connotations are the theme of the following things, which traces the developments of symbols in religion, myth, ritual, prayer, and magic. And it looks like 
and it looks at some of the key themes in the language of symbolism. There are no more powerful symbols than the gods. In Jungarian terms, the divinities and the myths that set out their relationships with humankind are conscious expressions of the unconscious. The deities and their associated symbols emerge from and are given from within our own psychological lives, but they address the unconscious at such a profound level that they appear to come from some source outside ourselves. They are, according to Jung, embodiments of humankind's natural religious function, an object of the psyche that must be developed to ensure psychic health and stability. If this explanation sounds as if it reduces the gods or gods to figments of our collective imagination, this is not so. For it does not deny that the collective unconsciousness may be in communication with an even deeper substratum of reality that represents the true creative source of our individual lives. Jungians say that we must recognize that this source, when discovered, can only reveal itself to us in a limited and limitating symbolic form. Although they originate in the human psyche, the gods of most cultures have been externalized, their energies projected onto the outside world in order to make their presence more immediate and tangible. For example, in ancient Egypt, the gods were symbolized by animals and best exemplified their powers, because that best exemplified their powers. Thus, the falcon, soaring high in the heavens and with sharpness of vision from which nothing can hide, symbolized Horus, lord of the sky. Aztec gods from the 12th and 16th century CE were built with powerful empire that is now were built from the powerful empire that is now Mexico. Aztec religion and myth incorporated elements from the cultures they subdued, and the Aztec pantheon was accordingly large and diverse. In the 260-day ritual calendar, each day was governed by one of 20 deities. And this really, this long episode leads into talking about the symbolism of the tarot. And if you're here from listening to the episode before where you listen to your tarot spread, this could be really helpful. The tarot cards are in effect two packs in one. The major arcana, which consists of 22 trump cards, each one unique, and the minor arcana, which differ from the modern playing cards only in that there are four court cards in each suit instead of three. It seems likely that these two packs were once separate. The origins of the tarot remain a mystery. Attempts have been made to trace it back vigorously to the ancient civilizations of Egypt, India, China, and its introduction into Europe has been credited to both the Arabs and the Roma. How the two packs became combined into one is also unclear. Recognizing their similar purpose, occultists in northern Italy may have used them as alternatives, with the result that over the years, they became more and more closely associated until the distinction between them disappeared. During this period, the cards went through many modifications. The first recorded pack to resemble the modern tarot was made for the Duke of Milan in 1415. Though 17 tarot cards in Paris are claimed by some to come from a deck made for Charles VI of France in 1392. What is certain is that from the early 15th century, the cards came to be widely used in France and Italy and eventually spread through Europe. In the course of time, through their original intention, became overlaid by their role as playing cards. The major arcana proved too complex for playing purposes and disappeared from what is now the modern playing deck. There is, strong, there is a strong tradition that locates the tarot's original origins 
in the body of wisdom said to be laid down by the Egyptian god Thoth, the Greek Hermes Trismegistus, for the disciples in magic. Inspired by this theory, an 18th century Paris wig maker and fortune teller who called himself Athelia, his real name was Athaliel in reverse, <laughs> devised his own tarot pack for divination. Alephius Levy later extended Athaliel's ideas into a complete system based on Egyptian names, but linked it also with the Kabbalah. Levi's interpretation is based on suspect premises, but the Kabbalistic echoes of the tarot are undeniable. For example, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet correspond with the 22 major arcana, and the four suits of the minor arcana could be said to reflect the four Kabbalistic four worlds. Levi's theories were a significant influence on Arthur Edward Waite, who devised one of the most popular packs in use today. The major arcana constitute one of the most intriguing of all symbols, combining mysteries of the past with a complex and powerful system of inner growth. To spend time with the tarot and identify with its images is, is to commence a journey of self-discovery that can leave the individual profoundly changed. The 22 cards that make up the major arcana are a symbolic synopsis of our own nature. One way of expressing this is that they are an attempt to represent the factors that constitute our personality, an attempt that predates the efforts of modern psychology by more than 500 years. In order to make use of the major arcana as a method of self-discovery, it is necessary to spend time reflecting on what each of the 22 cards represents and allow the image to be fixed in your mind so that you can visualize it in more detail. Don't worry whether you are talking to an image that has objective, that has objective reality or simply to an aspect of your own unconscious. In all work with symbols, results come only if we cease to plague ourselves with the need for logical explanations. The image is simply there, existing in its own dimensions. Let it do the work for you. In this way, use each of the 22 cards in order for the symbols to appear as they would normally. Don't allow personal preferences for certain cards to influence you. Don't regard some cards as good and some cards as bad. After each time with the card, start to stimulate your self-insights. Some of these will be aspects of yourself that are already well-known and accepted by you. Others will be more shadowy. This is an important discovery in itself. When you feel that a card has revealed all it can for you, move on, but don't rush things. And this is going to be one of many. I think we're going to come back to this and really talk more about the secret language of symbols. And I want to show you guys some photos from this really great book. And so that we can just talk more. I know that some, I've had some people say that like dream recall is not really a thing that works for them. Uh, so I like to tell you to set an alarm or when you just wake up naturally in the middle of the night, keep a notebook by your bed, keep a pillow, keep a pen or something under your pillow so that you can just write down a couple things, a couple symbols that you remember seeing in your dreams. The best way to get messages is to really pay attention to what's happening in your dreams. And if you're not able to dream, let's figure out, let's figure out why. Thanks for listening. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Metaphysical AF. If you'd like to get some merch or support the podcast, please go to www.metaphysicalaf.com. Bye.